0: house like gardened and i was like super pumped because i'm like i don't have to do any work right i can just like throw seeds at the dirt and then and then whatever it's good right until these two stupid little dogs came up to my front door made puppy eyes at my wife and she was just like oh right i remember i was like literally in the bathroom brushing my teeth and i come out and there's two more dogs in my house and my wife's just like You know, little, little quiver in the chin. You know what I'm talking about? Ah, gosh. And she was like, what was I supposed to do? I'm like, not let them in the house. <laughs> These little mongrels have destroyed my garden, right? I didn't even get to plant anything in there. Like, they've already dug up all the dirt and stuff. Like, I think they found a dead body in there. There's like, there's like a small, like, cat-sized thing wrapped in a blanket that they discovered. I don't even know, man. I ain't touching it. But the dogs found it, and now now I have to deal with it, right? So that's my life, right? I wanted a garden. I wanted a nice garden. And you know what? God wanted a nice garden, too. And we ruined that, too. So maybe this is my comeuppance. Maybe this is... Anyway. You know what else is also coming up before we dive into the scriptures and everything? Tomorrow is my 14th wedding anniversary. Isn't that awesome? And my wife isn't here right now to hear that, so, you know, that's okay. You can all tell her, like, hey, Scroggins talked about it. And so, can you believe that? Like, some woman, some crazy woman has decided to stay married. Not just marry me, but stay married to me for 14 years, right? Y'all need to give her a hug because she needs it. (laughs) Next time you see her, just be like, I don't know how you do it. One of my best friends, uh, Mary Gotro. every time she sees my wife, she says, Katie, I can't wait to see your crown in heaven. And I don't know how to take that. <laughs> anyway. So we're going to talk a little bit about gardens and stuff. Um, but if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. And if you don't have your Bibles with you, it's up on the screen. Um, for anybody that's new to this Jesus thing, Matthew is kind of in the last two-thirds of the book. It's the first book of the New Testament, and it's a book that tells the story of Jesus. And what we're going to read is a portion of what is called the Sermon on the Mount. Or if you want to, like, use $15 words, it's the Olivet Discourse, right? Olivet Discourse. Isn't that nice? So... um, this is the longest continuous preaching. This, this goes five, chapters 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Longest continuous preaching by Jesus. So it's super important. But here is a little section we're going to read. So here we go. Jesus is speaking and he says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That you may be children of your Father in heaven. Lord, we know you're here with us, and we're so grateful for that. But Lord, right now, we want you to know that we're giving you the right and the authority to speak to our hearts and minds, and to change what needs to be changed. Lord, we love you. Amen. So, uh, a fun thing about the Bible is that it's derivative, right? Do you know what derivative means, anybody? All right. Ian does. You get five Jesus points. So that, that'll get you an extra ride on the merry-go-round in heaven. Amen. Um, there's going to be one. It's fun. So anyway, um, so what that means is that the Bible like starts with an idea or concept, right? Or, or a theme or a statement or whatever, or a phrase even. And, and later authors of the Bible build on those ideas and help illuminate what it means. Does that make sense? Right? And so because of that, it's really important that you read Genesis, right? It's really important that you read the book of Genesis. In fact, N. T. Wright, one of the like premier biblical scholars in the world, he says if you don't understand the first eleven chapters of the Bible, first eleven chapters of Genesis, you won't understand the rest of it. You just won't, right? And if you don't understand the first three chapters of Genesis, forget trying to read anything that Paul writes, which is like like two-thirds of the New Testament, okay? Right? So it's important that we read this because the Bible is derivative, right? The book of Genesis lays out this foundation for us to help us understand what comes next. Y'all still with me? Right? So that means an early theme, image, or phrase is built upon by later authors, right? And they keep building on these things and adding layers of context to it. Does that make sense? All right? And here in Matthew chapter 5, this is when Jesus is announcing his kingdom. Okay? He's like, this is it, guys. You want to be a part of my club? This is how you do it. Right? And he lays out all this stuff. And then right here at the end of chapter 5, verse 48. Let me throw that back up. Thank you. He says these crazy things. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Right? So here's the bar that he set to get get into his kingdom. Perfection what that doesn't sound like i can do that right so has jesus lost his mind is jesus unrealistic no jesus is probably the most real dude out there right for real right so he's talking about his kingdom and this concept of kingdom is the central theme of jesus's ministry But not just Jesus' preaching and ministry, but the whole Bible. In fact, in the Old Testament, we can look at Isaiah in chapter 9 saying, For to us a child is born. We all know this from Christmas time, right? To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. It's talking about Jesus as a king and as a ruler. Isn't that neat? Right? In fact, the first words of John the Baptist, the first words of John the Baptist were about the kingdom of God. Right? He said, repent for the kingdom is at hand. Make straight your paths and prepare a way. Right? Jesus' theme, the introduction to, to his ministry, was a quotation from Isaiah talking about the kingdom of God. So it is incredibly important that we understand what we're talking about when we say the kingdom. Does that make sense? So, because the Bible is derivative, we've got to flip all the way to the front of the book. And go to Genesis. We've got to go to the Garden of Eden to understand what Jesus is talking about. Right? So Eden is described in the book of Genesis as a garden. Right? But we, we know from later authors, from authors like Isaiah and Malachi and Micah, that Eden is also envisioned as a high place, as like a mountaintop or a hilltop garden. And it was a place, this high place had a double meaning, right? Because you look at a mountain and you're like, oh, it's touching the sky, right? And in their mindset, that meant it was closer to heaven. So Eden was this place where in their cosmology, in their mindset, heaven and earth overlapped. Heaven touched earth. In the prophets and in the book of Revelation, we see the idea developed and introduced that the garden was also a temple, And was the seat of the presence and authority of God on earth. So it was a dual temple and palace. His throne was in the temple that was the garden that was on a mountaintop. See how these layers keep building, giving more richness to this idea. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Yeah. There's also, there's also a way that you can read Genesis chapter 1 in the creation narrative that it's a temple inauguration ceremony. And I, I won't go into that right now because it's super nerdy and everybody will fall asleep, right? But ask me about it later. Right? So the garden was the seat of God's kingdom. Does that make sense? The garden was the seat of God's kingdom. It was where he ruled. It was where he reigned. It was his place, his home. And then after the fall, right? We all know what happens in the story, right? Is uh, if, you, if you don't know if you're new here, you might not, I guess. I shouldn't assume. But Adam and Eve ignore God's commands, right? And they decide, you know what, God? Even though you created everything and you're like infinitely wise and everything, uh, I've been alive for like at least seven minutes So, I'm going to go ahead and do what I want. Deuces. Right? And then something happens that they didn't expect, I don't think. They got expelled from the garden. And and we're introduced with this other image. This another thing happened, right? It was fire. Fire falls from heaven. In some translations, it says there's a whirlwind of fire. In other translations, it says there's an angel carrying a a flaming sword. But this concept of this fire that represented this is where God is, and and you must go where he isn't. Does that make sense? And it's this super tragic moment where God has to say, I want to be with you, but I can't. And in fact, you can't be with me. And so as a warning, as a symbol of his presence, he shows fire. Isn't that crazy? And then the rest of the Bible is God trying to restore his creation back to his original intent. And he, and he gives us symbols and images and, and, and concepts and, and ideas along the way. Right? And so as the story progresses, he carves out these places where he says, I'll I'll live here, but you have to be careful when you come here. You have to be clean when you come here. right? Just in the same way, like if we try and fly too close to the sun, we burn up. Right? Because the sun is just that powerful. In the same way, God is just so holy that if we try and get too close to him, without cleaning ourselves, without being right, we'll burn up. And so God, for our protection, sets up warnings and barricades and barriers in place so that he can walk us through the process of sanctification, so that we can be close to him again. One of the ways he does this is he uh, he pulls the Israelites out of... Out of Egypt, right? Because they're in slavery and everything. And, and then he brings them out and they wander around the desert for a bit, like 40 years. But he's like, hey, so as a sign of my presence, as a sign of my presence, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have a tent just like you. I'm going to wander around the desert and live in a tent just like you. So he built this thing called the tabernacle, right? Which is a fancy name for giant tent, and he builds it, and he's very specific about how he wants it built. Right, He builds it, and, and then they decorate the inside in a very specific manner. And then Moses and his brother Aaron offer a sacrifice outside of the temple, outside of the main tent. And after they make the sacrifice, they pray a prayer, and then fire falls as a sign. And God says, I'm here as a sign. I'm here. And if you, if you dig in and you read Leviticus, and you can survive reading Leviticus, right? It's a little tough. It's a little tough. You'll notice that buried in all those rules and regulations that he's talking about, right? How to do this, and it's, you know, cut the fabric by this much, and then it's like, they cut the fabric by that much, you're like, ah, stop repeating yourself, right? But buried in there are some really interesting details. Did you know the inside of the main tent The main tabernacle. Did you know the inside was decorated like a garden? Had like images of wild animals and trees and fruiting plants. Isn't that cool? And then when the Israelites, they move into Israel and they all build houses. And then David, being such an amazing man of God, goes, Hey, God, it's not fair that I have a palace and you're still living in a tent. Can I build you a temple? And God's like, I love you, bro. But no, you've killed too many people. (laughs) But your son's going to do it. And so Solomon builds this amazing temple. Right? And they go to the altar, which is outside the temple. And they offer sacrifice. Right? And then they pray a prayer and then fire falls. If you want to look that up, it's 2 Chronicles 7.1. Do you know how the inside of the temple was decorated? Like a garden. Isn't that neat? Yeah, yeah. had golden decorations. Golden decorations. See, in these, the interior of the temple, the interior of the tabernacle was meant to remind you of Eden. Because God is longing for us to go back to Eden. To go back to the place where heaven touches earth. Where we can live with him. Because he longs to walk through the garden with you in the cool of the evening. And talk about your day. He misses you. Did you know that? And then, you know, the story continues through the Bible. And we're zooming through the whole Bible. Isn't this cool? We're just like... We're like on, on like the speed rail, straight through, right? So, the story moves forward, and tragedy strikes, right? That same stupid thought pattern of, you know what, God, I think I know better, pops up again. And it just keeps coming up. And finally, the Israelites are expelled from their promised land. And the temple's destroyed. And then after their time in exile, some of them get permission to come back. And the first thing they do is repair their temple. They repair their temple, which sounds great, right? But when the, the two leaders of this group, Ezra and Nehemiah, when, when they went back, they went with the intentions of repairing the temple, which is great. But the manner in which they did things was not. Not. See, sometimes we, we assume that because a certain person's in the Bible, that they're worth emulating. But that's not always true. See, the Bible is a horribly honest book. And it doesn't hide anything about the people involved in it. See, Ezra and Nehemiah were not kind people. They were people that were set out on a mission. They wanted to change culture. They wanted people to act right. And when they show up, there was a group of of like the northern tribes called the Samaritans. Right? And, And the Samaritans saw them coming back and said, hey, we're brothers. Can we help rebuild the temple? And they said, no. No, you've polluted yourself. You don't act right. Get away from us. But then they turned around and accepted The help of pagan kings, like the king of Assyria and the king of Persia. See, they were hypocrites. And then, and then, they took it a step further. And so some of of the Israelites remained in the promised land. Not all of them got expelled, but those ones that remained ended up Just having to marry whoever was there. And they married women that weren't Israelites. And when Ezra and Nehemiah came back, they said either divorce your wife, abandon your family, or leave. Act right. Act right. And then in Ezra chapter 3, you can read it if you want. They lay the foundations of the temple... They're rebuilding the temple of God, the place where God lives. And they sacrifice so many animals. And then they pray a prayer and no fire falls. See, the young people celebrated. young people celebrated, but the old people, the older priests and the old men and the elders, they wept because they knew that God wasn't there. God wasn't there. See, Ezra and Nehemiah, try as they might, they failed because Eden wasn't in their hearts. They didn't have the Garden of Eden in their hearts. See, think about this. When when you think of a garden, what comes to mind? When you think of a garden, what comes to mind? I know for me, I think of a place that has peace and tranquility. Abundance, right? You never walk into a garden and think there's not enough apples on these apple trees, right? Beauty. Gardens are beautiful. Try walking around like the botanical gardens in Dallas sometime on a weekend and not see a bride taking bridles, right? like, Like everyone's like, Instagram, like, you know, because it's beautiful, There's utility. Gardens are useful. Harmony. Satisfaction. Gardens are satisfying. I'm content. They're places of contentment. So when we go back to the Sermon on the Mount and see what Jesus is preaching and we see the theme of his kingdom, He's describing what it's like, what it feels like if you lived in a garden. See, for Jesus, he's saying the way that you bring Eden back to earth, the way that you help God in his plan of restoration, the way that we recreate things is by living it now. So often we have an idea of the kingdom of God is something far out and and we get there after we die. But no, the kingdom can be here and now. If we will. He says, You've heard it said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because gardens are places of peace. There's no anger in a garden. He says, if anyone demands of you your tunic, give him your cloak as well, because a garden is a place of abundance. He says, if you look at another woman, if you even look at another woman, you've committed lust in your heart. Because gardens are a place of satisfaction and contentment. He says to forgive your enemies and bless those that persecute you because there's no strife in a garden. Have you ever felt purposeless? Gardens have a purpose. Gardens feed people. In Genesis, we see this image of this, this river that flows out of the Garden of Eden and divides into four. And those rivers flow in the cardinal directions of north, south, east, and west. And we can go into the geography or history of why, but that's the directions that they go. And the implication is that the garden is supposed to feed and give life to the earth all around it. And then Jesus stands up on the great, great day of the feast and he says, He's whoever thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And springs of living water shall flow from him. You are supposed to be the garden. And that's what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. is to be the garden of Eden. See, God wants to decorate the interior of your heart, just like he decorated the inside of the temple. He wants your heart to look like Eden. So in Acts chapter 2, Jesus has been crucified and he's risen again. And all of the believers are gathered together in the upper room. And the Bible says that that they were giving to one another, and, and they lived in peace and harmony, and they were praying together. They were living out the values of the Garden of Eden. See, they had Eden with them. And then they prayed, and fire fell on each of their heads. And they became the place where heaven touched earth. And they added to their number daily because the garden is what you're made for. There's nothing more attractive than the Garden of Eden because it is where you are meant to live. We are made to be with God. We're made to live with him. And it is the only place, he is the only place that will ever feel like home. God wants to reclaim your heart, just like I'm going to have to reclaim my garden. The prophet Micah says this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I even offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. It was there all along. It wasn't about doing right. It wasn't about acting right. Like Nehemiah and Ezra thought, it was about being right. To decorate your life like the Garden of Eden. To be generous, to be peaceful, to be kind. You see, here's the crux of everything I'm trying to say tonight. God does not want cultural conformity. He wants true conversion. God does not want cultural conformity. He wants true conversion. See, God, he won't settle for anything less than the reformation of your heart. The second temple, the temple of Ezra Ezra and Nehemiah, was a failure because all the sacrifices and all the right actions did nothing to change their hearts. They were still cruel, unforgiving, stingy. But here's what I want you to note. If our hearts are supposed to be the new temple, the new Garden of Eden, Where is the sacrifice made? Because the sacrifice is always made outside of the temple. Well, there was a high place about 2,000 years ago where a sacrifice was made. And Jesus' sacrifice on the altar of the cross makes it possible for God to make a holy of holies in your heart. Where he can rule and reign and walk with you in the cool of the evening and talk about your day. and we can be a place where heaven touches earth. Here's an even more beautiful thing. Remember that last line? If we can put that back up, Matthew 5:48. Remember that scary statement? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Man, that terrifies me. But it shouldn't. I want you to think about this. Jesus has just spent all of chapter 5 telling you how to act. And then he sums it up by saying, act like your father. So all of those things that we described, what a garden is like, and how Jesus wants us to live, how we need to be generous and kind and forgiving and compassionate... And content and satisfied, those are all attributes of your father in heaven as well. See, his heart is more of a garden than you can ever imagine. Do you see that? Our father in heaven is so satisfied with you. When you you go to him, he is so content and he is so happy. And he will give and give and give. He he causes his son to rise on the righteous and the unrighteous. Just the same. The rain falls on the just and the wicked. Just the same. Because his heart is just as much of a garden as Eden. So as the band comes back up. I want us to remember... As we go this spring break, some of us are going on missions trips. Some of us are going to places where God is scarce and the garden is foreign. And we can be a place where heaven touches earth. We can bring that character of God with us. So sacrifice has been made. Jesus has already made the sacrifice and he's already prayed the prayer. All we have to do is bow our heads, seek God, and let fire fall upon us. So let's stand.